be seated. I want to say good morning once again to you. It's good to be here with you this morning. And uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be diving into verses 7 through 19 this morning. I want to call your attention to a couple of announcements first. If you have children uh, who would like to go to children's ministry, and I think they beat me out, but um, they can go out those back doors right there, and our children's ministry crew will be happy to take them back where they will uh, they will have a lesson at their age level and uh, be able to experience um, all of the stuff that we've got planned for them this morning. Um, on second announcement that I've got for you in addition to what we heard earlier was just on June 26th, um, we're going to have the opportunity to welcome my friend Josh Monda to our worship service. He'll be preaching that morning. I'm still planning on being here uh, that day, but I asked Monda to come, and that's what I call him, by the way. I call him by his last name. Uh, I asked Monda to come and, uh, and preach that morning so that I can spend the week leading up to that focusing on uh, preparing for a youth camp that I'm speaking, uh, speaking at in July. So July 10th through 16th, I'll be speaking at a, at a camp. I've talked about this before called Impact University in Storm Lake, Iowa. And uh, Dana and Simon are actually going to go along with as family leaders uh, to be able to serve there. And so please be praying for us as we prepare uh, to go and minister to teenagers. It's an awesome opportunity that our church has to actually minister to people in another state. Um, I'm viewing it really as sort of a missions opportunity for our church. And so I hope you will do that as well. That same week uh, that I'll be there, Javen is going to be going with a team from his college to England on a mission trip to do some mission work in England. And so um, the week, that week before, um, that Sunday before, we'll go ahead and we'll have everybody come up and we'll do like a commissioning where we as a church are sending out people to other parts of the world and and the country as well. So I just want you to be excited about that, be praying towards that. Um, But now I want us to turn our attention to the book of Hebrews. Uh, This letter that we've been walking through, um, this letter to Jewish Christians, Hebrew Christians, we said, most likely started out as a sermon in its original form, uh, and then was, of course, written down. These first recipients of this message were facing opposition to their faith. They were beginning to face some pretty stiff opposition. The conflict was heating up, and they were under fire spiritually. The stakes here were incredibly high. And I imagine the author of Hebrews, this is going to make you laugh if you know what I'm talking about, and if you don't, uh, just bear with me. But I imagine the author of Hebrews being a little bit like Mel Gibson's character in the movie The Patriot. If you've not seen that film, uh, it's about the Revolutionary War. The War for Independence, okay, 1776 and all that, okay? And at the end of this movie, there's this big battle, and it looks like the American Revolutionary Army is going to be defeated by the Redcoats. The soldiers are beginning to retreat, right? They're running by him, and Gibson's out there in the field, and and these uh, guys are retreating. They're running past him, and it's of course, it's all slow-mo, right? And he looks up, and he sees the guy running, and he's carrying, the guy's carrying the American flag, and he's running away from the battle, and Gibson grabs the flag from the retreating flag bearer, and he runs toward the front, like up the incline, and he's, his guys are retreating. He's holding the flag, and he's running towards the battle, and he's yelling, hold the line, hold the line. And his buddy, who's a leader, sees this, and, and he's inspired by it, and he says, Pull for, push forward, men, push forward, and they advance. Now, I hate to spoil the end of the movie for you, but it's a battle that was 200 years ago, 
and we don't live in a colony of England right now, so hate to spoil the movie for you, but uh, you missed your chance to see it. It's like 20 years old. But this is how the writer of Hebrews, by the way, I'm not suggesting that that movie is historically accurate, <laughs> okay? But this is this, this idea, this is how I see the writer of Hebrews. He's the flag bearer who's waving the banner and urging us to press forward and persevere in our faith. But this author's banner is Christ. He's warning of danger. He's pointing out what is at stake, and he urges us to press on and to persevere. This letter really is like a wartime communication. So when we come, now knowing the context of it, when we come to verse 7 of chapter 3 and we see the second of the warnings in Hebrews, I said there's this group of warnings throughout the book of Hebrews, this is the second one, we need to take it seriously as a missive sent to those who are in the battle of their lives. Because you may or may not know it, but we are in the battle of our lives. So follow along as I read, and and let's see what the Lord would say to us today in his word. Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who, left e- who had left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand and apply it to our lives this morning. Lord God, you've spoken to us in your word. Help us understand what it means. Help us apply it to our lives. Help us to know what to do with it day in and day out. Help us to heed the warnings and to hold firm to our confession of you, Jesus, that you are Lord and that only you save. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, Lord willing... Today, what I want to do is cover four ways to watch out for unbelief in our lives and to combat it, okay, from this passage. And those ways are this. This is kind of like your preview, okay? Those ways are this. Listen to God's voice, guard your heart, exhort one another, and hold on to Jesus. That's what we're going to be walking through today. So let's begin with listening to God's voice. Verse 7 gives us another one of those transition words that point us back to what we just read and its relationship to what the author is about to say. If you look at verse 7, the first word is, therefore. 
right? So therefore, and, and there's that old preacher added, additive there uh, that you hear of, you know, when you see the word therefore, you got to ask what's it there for, right? Okay. It's a transition word and it points back to what came before. So we have to go back to what we read before, what we talked about before. Because Jesus is so much greater than Moses, right? That's what we talked about. Because Jesus is so much greater than Moses, don't fall back into those old covenant ways that are not sufficient to save, but rally around the banner of Christ. Rally around the only message that can truly save, around the one who sanctifies us, makes us holy. Rally around Christ Jesus, who is the faithful Son of God. So he's saying, because these things are true, because Jesus is the holy Son of God, he's the one that saves, he's greater than Jesus, he's greater than Moses, and these things that he said before, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, And then he goes on, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. And he he continues. Now there's a quote here. You might, if you've got your Bible in front of you, you'll see that the typesetting usually is a little bit different to uh, let you know that that is a quote of an Old Testament passage. We've been in Hebrews for several weeks now, and you know just about every week there's some kind of quote from the Old Testament in here. Uh, the, the author of Hebrews has a very high view of Scripture, and he loves to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And he quotes here from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. And the author uses these verses to exhort his readers and us to not act in the faithless ways like the Israelites did. He's actually transitioning from using good examples of Jesus and Moses in the previous section to using a poor example to not follow of the Israelites and their rebellion against God. It says, and he uses the verse, it says, today, if you hear his voice, there's a sense of urgency about this. We only have today. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not even guaranteed an hour from now. Don't wait. Don't put it off for another day that may never come, but do it today. Decide now. Trust Jesus now. Listen and obey now. It's a thing that is in the current. We used to tell the kids, we still probably mention this, delayed obedience is disobedience, right? Do it today. Like, if you hear his voice, do it today. Like, today. Okay? That's all we have is today. And then he says, if you hear his voice. Now, this is a very important phrase. This is a very important phrase. If you hear his voice is key because it is only through an act of mercy and salvation that we are, that we are able to hear his voice. Only those who have trusted in Jesus. Al Mohler writes this, God speaks in order to save his people. The original author teaches his audience that God has graciously spoken so that they might be saved. Now they must obey God's voice and faithfully follow it into eternity. God spoke, God spoke, and God, we have God's word right here, how God has spoken. He has done this to, so that we might be saved. Revealed Jesus to us by his word. In his word, Jesus is the word made flesh after all. So the question though is, it says, today if you hear his voice, so the question is, if you hear his voice, well, how does God speak? What does that look like? 
biblically? Like, what, do the, what does that look like? Because you've probably heard people say, God told me X. Or, or, or maybe, what, and, and sometimes they don't mean he verbally told them X. What they sometimes mean is, uh, I feel a, a leading, a prompting in my soul, uh, something of that nature. And that's just the only language they've got for it is, I feel like God's telling me to do this thing. Or he's trying to communicate to me to do this thing. But I was reading this and I thought, okay, well, in order to know if you hear his voice, we need to find out how does God speak? How do we hear his voice? What are we talking about here? Well, the author of Hebrews actually addresses this at the very beginning of the book. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So we talked about this, and if you missed that sermon, you can go back on the podcast or on the website and listen to the sermon from the first week of Hebrews where actually covered that passage. But I wanted to give another passage in referencing how God speaks, 2 Peter 1.21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So men didn't come up with this. Men didn't come up with the word of God. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. They were inspired and wrote God's word. Now, how does God speak? God speaks primarily through his word. Phillips writes this, The Holy Spirit has given God's word through the scriptures and now speaks to us by applying that word to our hearts. I'm going to read that again because that's a key quote. The Holy Spirit has given God's word through the scriptures, okay, those inspired men that were carried along by the Spirit, The Holy Spirit has given God's word through the scriptures and now speaks to us by applying that word to our hearts. In other words, we're deep in the word, we're studying the word, we're learning learning from the word. And the Holy Spirit speaks to us and applies that to our hearts. I'm astounded at the Christians that I know who want to know what God wants them to do but have no regard for spending time digging into his word. It's astounded by how many Christians want to know what God wants them to do, and they have the Bible is over there. So many. I can't believe I just threw my Bible. It's amazing. So are you listening to him when he speaks? He speaks to us personally through the Word of God, the Bible. One prominent pastor and theologian said it this way. This is what he said. God talks to me no other way. But don't get this wrong. He talks to me very personally. I open my Bible in the morning to meet my friend, my Savior, my Creator, my Sustainer. I meet Him and He talks to me. I'm not denying providence, not denying circumstances, not denying people. I'm just saying that the only authoritative communion I have with God, with any certainty, comes through the words of this book. And I think that's a key, what he says there, the only authoritative communion I have with God, with any certainty, comes through the words 
of this book. Verse 7 says, as the Holy Spirit says, meaning that the Holy Spirit still speaks through his word. The Bible is living and active. Later on in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to read this verse, Hebrews 4.12. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is living and active. God still speaks to his people. The Holy Spirit still speaks to God's people, to his people. And hearing from God in the Bible is a personal experience and a supernatural experience. And the, I think part of the problem is, is that a lot of times we're like, well, I've got to read my Bible. You know, we, it's a homework assignment, right? Like, oh, I've got to sit down. I've got to read my Bible. I'm going through this reading plan that Pastor Cal gave me. Oh, I've got to get through it, right? And we check it off and we move along. And what we've missed is that reading the Bible is supposed to be a personal experience of God communicating to us, but also a supernatural experience of God communicating to us. The Holy Spirit is the only way that works. Nancy Guthrie, who has a a really insightful article on God speaking to us, and she writes this, God is spoken and is in fact still speaking to us through the scriptures. We don't need any more special revelation. What we need is illumination. And this is exactly what Jesus promised the Holy Spirit will give us as his word abides in us. The Holy Spirit of God works through the word of God to counsel and comfort and convict. And we see that in John 16, 7 through 15. Through the scriptures, we hear God teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us in righteousness. And, and we see that played out in 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17. And the word of God transforms us by renewing our minds so that we think more like him and less like the world. Instead of needing God to dictate to us what to do, we become increasingly able to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what we read in Romans 12 too. When you pray and converse with God, listen close here. When you pray and you converse with God and you think that he is speaking to you, the question is, are you deep enough in the word that you can discern what he is saying to you? Listen to this. Please hear me and hear the heart of love I have for you when I say this, okay? Not every idea you have is a God idea. Now, some of you are laughing because, of course, pastor, not every idea you have is a God idea. I know a pastor who had served at his church several years. He was getting older. And one day he went up to the pulpit and he announced that God had told him it was time for him to retire. God told me I'm supposed to retire. Uh, He was going to give the church 10 months to find his replacement And then he'd be done at the end of the year. But then as the time got closer, around a month out from his retirement date, he gets up in front of the church and he tells them, God told me not to retire. Okay, so did God change his mind? Which is what scripture says doesn't happen, by the way. Or were you wrong? Or no, God told me to retire. Now God told me not to retire. This church was already deep in their pastoral search process. What do you think happened 
when that happened, because the church had already started to move on, right? What do you think happened? Well, there was an uproar. Some wanted him to stay. Others wanted him gone. People called secret meetings. There were angry words said, and the church lost people and currently is a shell of what it once was. And the result of a guy throwing those words around is that the ministry of the gospel and of that church in that community was severely damaged. We have to be careful throwing around those words. God told me. God told me. God told me. Some of you may not be able to discern what God is saying in his word because you don't know what his voice sounds like because you've never met him. You're not a Christian. You've never truly trusted in the truth of the gospel that Jesus died in your place for your sin and rose from the dead. Some of you don't hear his voice in the word because you just don't, you don't, you've never met him. Some of you may not want to hear his voice. Maybe you don't care to hear from God in his word. This, frankly, should scare you. It should, it should terrify you. If you don't want to hear from God and you have no desire for the things of Christ, you're probably lost in your sin. See, what our author does here is he moves from positive examples of Moses and Jesus to these negative ex examples of the Israelites, and he exhorts his audience and us not to harden our hearts as in the rebellion. In other words, don't harden your hearts to what God is saying. Don't harden your hearts to the word of God. See, during the rebellion, as the Israelites are being led, they were led out of Egypt by Moses, by their disobedience, they fell in the wilderness. They failed to enter the promised land because they'd hardened their hearts. See, the story of the rebellion, this takes place in the book of Exodus. God had used the plagues and had Moses lead the people out of Egypt. God had freed them from their slavery, and now they had the audacity to distrust that God would provide for them. Well, that doesn't sound anything like us, does it? They complained and grumbled against God and even went so far as to suggest that they would have been better off back in Egypt. This is the height of ingratitude and unbelief. And it's hard to grasp it fully. But if we start to think about it, we take on very similar attitudes at times when we have something less intense than possible starvation in the wilderness to deal with. God had shown himself to be both willing and able to supply their needs. But they didn't trust him. And worse than that, they complained against him. They didn't trust him. And they complained against him, even when he had shown himself to be faithful. And a lot of times I think we get this attitude today, you know, 2,000 years later or however long later, right? We get this attitude of, if I saw the things, that, if I saw Jesus like heal that guy who'd never walked before, or heal that blind man, or to feed the 10,000, whatever, if I saw, or the, you know, the 5,000 with the fish and the loaves and all that, if I saw that, I would believe. Well, the Bible says even if someone raises from the dead, Jesus said that about people. Like Even if somebody raises from the dead, they won't believe. Someone did raise from the dead. And so it's easy for us to say, well, if I was set free from Egypt and I experienced those plagues and everything, I wouldn't grumble against God. Well, we do it when there's far less going on in our lives than starvation in the desert. 
And they weren't going to starve in the desert because he provided manna, he provided quail. Exodus 17, 2 through 4, it, it talks about this. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And folks, this was not the first time they complained. They'd seen his mighty works in Egypt, his plagues, the Passover. They were set free. They passed through the Red Sea with the water like walls on each side. And they go through on dry ground. We know from reading scripture that sometimes God hardens the hearts of men, but sometimes men harden their hearts toward God themselves. So the example of God hardening someone's heart is Pharaoh. The Bible tells us, the scripture tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Okay, But there are times when men harden their hearts towards God. And, and the Bible here, Scripture here in Hebrews, warns us to not harden our hearts as they did in the rebellion. The Greek word that's used there for harden, it means to harden uh, or to stiffen or become stubborn. To become stubborn. So how do we harden our hearts? How do we make our hearts stubborn towards God? Well, we read in verse 13... But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So our hearts are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Folks, sin is a trickster. It wants to rule over you and destroy you. If you're a believer in Christ, its power, sin's power, has been defeated, yet it pulls and it tugs and it tries to deceive you into thinking that there is better Something out there better than the joy of following Christ. Even if it's momentary. Sin tries to get you to follow shallow desires and seek your own happiness in your own way. And it's a slow fade. Most people don't jump right into the deep end of the sin pool sometimes. Most people, it's a slow fade. When I was, I use this illustration a lot because none of you were there. Um... (laughs) But uh, when I was a youth pastor for 15 years, I'm getting ready to go back and do this youth camp, and so I'm thinking back about when I was in youth ministry, and it's been a long time, and boy, youth culture has changed a lot even since then, okay? And, uh, and so I've been thinking a lot about it, and I remember, like, I'd be, you know, working with youth, and I have a kid that was like, we came back from camp, and this kid was like on fire, and like, we're gonna, I'm gonna live for Christ, I'm gonna do all this stuff, and then everything's good, two, three weeks, or whatever, and then pretty soon, they miss a week. And then they come back. Then they miss a couple of weeks. And then they're like, yeah, I'm not going to be able to go on the mission trip. I've, I've got this other. And then pretty soon they're gone. And it's just that slow fade. Then you see them six months later. They walk by with their friends while you're meeting. We had a, our youth facility at the last church I was a youth pastor at was on the town square. So they walk by and they stop in to talk for a little bit. And you, you talk to them. Then slowly it comes out, yeah, I haven't been walking with the Lord. I've been out partying and doing this and doing that. It's a slow fade. And it's what we're being warned against. Don't harden your heart to the things of God. See, the Israelites, they tested God and he was provoked with them. He was angry at their rebellion. 
they'd been disobedient and defiant to the Lord, and they kept it up in spite of his great kindness to them. He showed them great kindness and salvation from Egypt, and they still kept up their defiance because their hearts got harder and harder and harder towards him. And that generation, they never made it to the promised land. They died in the wilderness. So we need to listen to the voice of Lord and not, or the Lord and not harden our hearts. Second, yes, point number two, and we're almost a half hour in. Do with that what you want. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Take care. Take care. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care. Watch yourself. An evil, unbelieving heart leads you to fall away from the living God. So what we need to do on a regular basis is a heart checkup. A heart checkup. A couple years ago, it's kind of funny that it's been a couple years now, I think, maybe a year and a half, I went to the heart doctor. I was having some palpitations. I'm a little overweight. I'm a lot overweight. And uh, I was concerned. I thought, I don't want to die at 40, at the time, 43 years old or 42, however old I was. And um, I need to go to the doctor and get this checked out. So I went to the doctor to get it checked out. Because when you don't do that, sometimes what happens is there's a problem, you don't know about the problem, and then you wake up one day in eternity, right? And I got some, I mean, if God takes, God's going to take me when he takes me, and that's fine, but like I want to be around for a long time of ministry and serving the Lord. And so I went and got a checkup to find out what was going on. I'm okay, by the way, but you guys know that already. Well, okay, you may not say I'm okay, um, but I'm healthy. All right, anyway, so you do a heart checkup. So I want to encourage you, how do you keep from having this evil, unbelieving heart? You do a heart checkup, first of all, you examine yourself. But we have to define evil and unbelieving heart in the way Scripture would. So let me ask you this question. What are your greatest desires? What's the thing you want more than anything else? What do you spend the majority of your time thinking about and doing? What is utmost in your affections? Are there things in your heart and your life that you actively put before God? And, and guys, there's a temptation for us to answer these questions based on our standards of what we're putting before God. But God has set the standard, not us. And so when we look at what the Bible says about where our hearts are at, what God says about what an evil, unbelieving heart is, what is utmost in our affections? What are the things in your heart and your life that you actively would put before God that have become idols to you? Have you let the deceptiveness of sin slip in? Um, this next part you might want to be a little brave with. You know, it will take being brave. You may say, man, I just don't feel like I'm where um, I want to be with the Lord. And you might want to go to a brother or sister in Christ and say, do you see areas where the deceptiveness of sin has slipped into my life? And give them full license to just be brutally honest about it with you. 
But we need to examine ourselves. We're, we're going to get to talking to other people in a minute. But see, here's the thing about sin. I talked about it being deceptive and slipping in. When God is talking to Cain in Genesis 4, Genesis 4, verses 6 through 7, you remember Cain and Abel, uh, brothers. Cain was real jealous of Abel, so he kills him, okay? Um, but uh, Genesis 4, 6 through 7, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Okay, look, it's, it, it's not great to take one verse and make an entire theology out of, okay? Um, so just always be careful with that. But when it says that sin is crouching at your door, the idea of crouching at your door is like a predator who's ready to pounce on its prey. Its desire for you is something to be resisted and guarded against. The, the word for its desire is to have you is the same word that use, is used in a negative sense in uh, Genesis 3 when God is cursing uh, man and woman and the serpent. And he talks to the woman, says, your desire is to be for your husband. That means like she wants to usurp him, have his place, be the leader. Like she's going to try to take over that. Like that's not, that's not talking about desire. Like I want my husband kind of thing. Sin wants you to have you. And it's crouching, pounced like a tiger or a lion ready to devour you. And we play with it like it's a kitten. Second Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And 2 Peter 1, 10 through 11 says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when we go through our time of testing, when you go through your time of testing in the wilderness, where things maybe aren't super comfortable the way you want them, yet you have seen God provide, but you're in the wilderness, maybe you're wandering around, figuratively or maybe literally, A.W. Pink wrote this, Testings reveal the state of our hearts. A crisis neither makes nor mars a man, but it does manifest him. While all is smooth sailing, we appear to be getting along nicely. But are we? Are our minds stayed upon the Lord, or are we instead complacently resting in his temporal mercies? When the storm breaks, it is not so much what we fail under not so much that we fail under it, it is that our habitual lack of leaning upon God, of daily walking in dependency upon Him, is made evident. In other words, the storm isn't what breaks us, it's the fact that we're not walking dependently on the Lord leading up to the storm. The storm, the testing, just reveals what's already going on inside. I used to ask my students 
when the pressure's on, you know, what comes out of you? So when I squeeze an orange, what comes out of the orange? They'd all say, orange juice, right? And I'd say, okay. Well, when you squeeze a Christian, what comes out? And some idiot would say, Christian juice. What I was getting at was when the pressure's on, when the testing's on, what will be revealed coming out of you is what you've been all along. And you could call that Christian juice if you want, but maybe not publicly, like I just did. So what we see is we see a hardening of the hearts of the Israelites. They were comparing their former situation to their current, and when we get into the game of comparison, it hardens our hearts to what God is doing with us right here and right now. I struggle with the game of comparison sometimes, guys, with other pastors. I see pastors younger than me, who I knew when they were teenagers, and they get hired, and they're at some big church, and, you know, all this stuff, and I'm like, oh, man, you know. Comparison. Comparison says the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Comparison says uh, that, that, that you can forget about the wonderful things God has already done for you and is doing with you, because that's what they did. They forgot about those things, and they were ungrateful for them. I heard one guy say comparison is just comparing what you know about yourself to what you don't know about someone else. And comparison's bad, and it will harden your heart to where God has you and what God wants you to do. Let me just clarify, since I use myself as, as an example, let me just clarify this. There's no other church I want to pastor other than this church right here, just so you know. Just want to let you know, but I'm not immune to the sin of comparison. I'm not immune to that because I struggle to. And I actually confessed that to a couple of guys this week who were, who were in the office and just talked with them and just said, hey, I just want you to know I, 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 like, I deal with this too. So listen to God's voice, guard your heart. Third, exhort each other. Exhort each other. While it's still today, while you can, Make the most of every opportunity that you get. The meaning of exhort is to strongly encourage or urge someone to do something every day. Do it every day. This is not limited to Sundays here. As a church, we should be exhorting each other all the time, every day. Not just when we gather here on Sundays, but out there as well. When was the last time that you were around a fellow member of this church out there in the Dixon community? Not just in these four walls on Sundays, but during the week. We need to be exhorting one another, encouraging one another, helping one another keep watch on our lives and our doctrine. It's part of loving one another. What I talked about earlier, finding someone and saying, wow, I'm, I'm really struggling here. Would you, as my brother in Christ, as my sister in Christ, would you look at my life and tell me if you see where sin has crept in, and give them permission to call you out on that and for you to give up, the, give up your perceived right to be angry about it when they call you out on it. There's not a lot worse than someone asking you to hold them accountable and then when you do hold them accountable, they get angry at you for doing what they asked you to do. <laughs> That's a terrible feeling. So exhort one another. And lastly, hold on to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. 
Verse 14 says this, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Hold on to Jesus. If we hold our original confidence till the end, we can know that we have come to share in Christ. And I said this last week, perseverance of the saints, it's a doctrine that is mentioned a lot, that is, that is, that is, is poked at throughout the book of Hebrews. That those in Christ, those in the faith, will remain faithful to the end. And those in the faith till the end will be saved. We can know that we have come to share in Christ. The author repeats again the warning in verse 15. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Again, quoting Psalm 95. Jesus promises his rest to his people, and we must hold unswervingly to him. Those in faith will remain in the faith till the end. The question is, are you in the faith? Examine yourself. Examine yourself by the Word of God. Test yourself. It's okay to do that. The Scripture tells us to do that. If you have salvation, you can't lose it. You can't lose your salvation because you didn't earn it. That's the beauty of the gospel. You didn't do this. Jesus did. God is a holy God. He's pure, holy, just, loving, and merciful. And He established His law. And those who've broken His law, those who have sinned against Him, who have disobeyed His commands, those of us who are human, we have a sin nature. Every human ever has had a sin nature except one, and that's Jesus. And our sin must be punished. The wages of sin, the Bible tells us, is death. And so our sin must be punished. And so that sin, uh, that sin nature separates us from God. But because God is just and requires his wrath be poured out upon sin, but he is also love, he provided a sacrifice for sin, a perfect sacrifice, a once and for all sacrifice. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, 100% God, 100% man, came to earth, lived a perfect life in our place, a life we couldn't live. Because, I mean, I've screwed up already today, okay? He lived a perfect, sinless life for his entire life and gave that perfect life as a substitute for us. Died in the place of sinners on the cross as a substitute, as an atoning sacrifice that paid the price for sin. And he died dead. He was buried in a tomb. And three days later, he arose, which proved that God accepted that sacrifice as payment that it worked, that he defeated death in the grave. And that message, that you can't lose it because you didn't earn it, that message of the gospel speaks directly into what we're talking about today. The gospel is why you can hear God's voice. Those who've trusted in Jesus have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, helping them to understand what God is saying in the word. The gospel is the only reason that we can listen to his voice. Jesus reconciled sinners to the Father. Secondly, the gospel is how we guard our hearts. We preach the gospel to ourselves. 
There's a short little book called Note to Self by my friend Joe Thorne, and it's about preaching the gospel to yourself. It's a short little few, like three or four paragraphs per day about how you preach the gospel to yourself. You rehearse the gospel over and over. It's how we guard our hearts. Third, the gospel is how we exhort each other. We encourage each other in the gospel. We remind each other of the glorious truths that Jesus came, died, and rose and calls us to follow him. And we exhort each other and encourage each other in that. And fourth, the gospel is how we hold on to Jesus. He's the only one who can help us. He's the only one who can save us and change us. And he's the only one who can make us holy and like him. You see, self-help doesn't work. Did you know that self-help books are one of the largest segments in the publishing world? Did you know this? Self-help books. Every year... There were thousands of self-help books that are put out. In 2019, and I got to believe this number probably went up after COVID, okay? But in 2019, just in your mind, guess how many self-help books were published. Individual, these are individual titles with IBSN, you know, individual numbers assigned to them. In 2019, there were 85,253 individual self-help titles put out. Why? Why so many self-help books? What is the reason for such a glut of them? Well, Jared C. Wilson in his non-self-help book called The Imperfect Disciple, which I highly recommend, says this. It's because they don't work. We keep looking for the answer within us as if we'll find it in the same place as the problems. Self-help is like sticking your broken hand in a blender thinking that'll fix it. I love that illustration. We don't need to fix ourselves. We can't. We don't need to just get better. We need Jesus to make us new. And the gospel says that he does. So cling to him. Cling to the crucified. Cling to the Holy One. Cling to the King for dear life. At this time, I'm going to invite our musicians to come back up to the stage. And they're going to lead us in a final song. But as they are coming, I want to give you four very quick points of application to challenge you to apply what we heard today to your life, okay? And if you've been listening, these are not going to come as a surprise. So here's some ways you can apply this to your life. Number one, listen for God's voice in Scripture. We find in Scripture that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, okay? Don't be the guy who's praying for God's will, setting three feet from his closed Bible. Number two, preach the gospel to yourself. Rehearse it. Number three, seek ways to encourage each other in perseverance. Do it by being present when we gather on the Lord's Day for worship. Do it by being part of one of the other groups during the week. Men's ministry would be a great time. But eventually we're going to have other groups to join throughout the week. Do it by simply making it a point to be around other church members at some point during the week. That might mean going out for coffee, going over for a visit, going for a walk. And number four, do things that soften your heart to the Lord. Obviously, number one is read his word. 
But do things that build your affections for Jesus. Steer clear of grumbling and complaining and comparison and anything that might harden you to the things of God. There, look, there's no shortage of things that want to pull you away from God. In our culture, I mean, they're coming at us 100 miles a minute. On our phones, on TV, internet, whatever. Coworkers, friends, resist the things that dull your affections to God and harden your heart and try to pull you away from the Lord and cling to the crucified one. Would you stand with me? I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. And then after I do, we're going to sing one final song of worship together. But if you have heard the voice of the Lord in his word this morning, and you know that you need to, maybe you've been convicted of sin, you need to repent, turn away from your sin and turn to the Lord. Maybe you have some, you're like, I don't even understand this Jesus stuff, whatever it is. Um, be happy to talk with you afterwards or set up some time to talk during the week, whatever it is. So let me lead you in a word of prayer and then um, we'll, we'll sing the final song of worship together. God, as we come to this time of, of responding um, to what you are doing in our hearts and our, our, our lives, I pray that we would respond in obedience to what we see in your word, that, that God, we're called to, to cling to you. We're called to not harden our hearts. We're called to listen to where you've spoken. And I just pray that you would move us on in obedience. Grow our understanding of you. Help us to exhort one another. Help us to preach the gospel to ourselves. Help us to walk faithfully with you. Help us to resist the things that would pull us away from you. as we continue to worship. In Jesus' name I pray.